Hi, I'm Al Mayer. I'm 80 years old. I've done everything possible in the music business. Made my living from it for 62 years. Uh, you name it, I've done it. I've been sold retail, I've owned a record company, I've been a music publisher, I've managed Gordon Lightfoot. I was president of SOCAN, president of SERPA, president of the Music Publishers Association, winner of three Juno Awards. When there are awards for industry people, I'm in the Hall of Fame, blah, blah, blah. I own a company called Attic Records. We received 114 gold, platinum, multi-platinum albums from around the world. You're listening to Talking Blues with my friend Mako. You've accomplished a lot in music, but it all starts with your love of music. Where does that come from? Good question, Mako. Uh, not from my family, because they weren't particularly musical, but around the eight or nine, I started becoming fascinated with pop music. And I used to listen to a radio station, CHML in Hamilton, on Sunday from 12 to 1, they would count down the top 10 records of the week. Where they got their positions from, I assume from Billboard or one of the American trade papers. I used to religiously listen to that every Sunday. Uh, and I listened to the radio all the time and I started buying 78 RPM records. I used to hang around a record store. I got hired there when I was 12 to sell records over the counter. Tell me about that because I mean, obviously, working at 12 is pretty impressive, but you got hired because you knew a lot about music. Where yeah. did that knowledge of music come from when when there was no internet? And, and basically, you, what you were learning, I would presume, came from radio. Listening to the radio, uh, Canadian radio was very bland, and that was the pop music of the time. Patty Page and Joe Stafford and... People like that, very middle of the road, but I enjoyed it. I also uh, started listening to a radio station at night, WOWO in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which had a top 40 format. So I was being exposed to more than just the middle of the road stuff. And I also listened to a DJ in Buffalo called The Hound, George Lorenz, who played only black music, R&B. Uh, and I listened to that at night too. When signals on radio, AM radio, changed at night, and you could get distant stations that you couldn't get during the day. What would have been the music that just got you totally hooked to music? Like, what would have been the song that that really got you? It's a good question. I enjoyed everything, uh, but I probably enjoyed the R and B, which surprised me at a young age because it had soul had more feeling in it. Uh, I can remember John Lee Hooker being one of the artists I heard. Uh, a lot of the doo-wop groups. Uh, I really like doo-wop music. The Moon Glows. Uh, they were probably my Flamingos. The Robins before they became the Coasters. Clyde McFadder and the Drifters. So at this point, was there any kind of a Canadian scene? Uh, there was 
almost no Canadian scene. Maybe the odd Canadian record was being made, but I think the first Canadian artist I heard, and it was because it was an American hit, was probably Percy Faith with a song called Theme from a Summer Place, which was a, a big movie. And it was a, a top five record in North America, but he was living in the States. He had left Canada long before. When I was in high school, a group uh, in my high school, Humberside Collegiate here in Toronto, recorded a song uh, called Beverly. They were called The Jades. And interestingly, a few years ago, I was able to find it on the internet. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I haven't been able to find it since, so I don't know what happened to it. <clears throat> also had, and I can't remember which group he was in, but a member of either the Crew Cuts or the Diamonds used to come into the record store and buy R&B records. And both those acts had covers of R&B records that became pop hits. Uh, the Crew Cut's big hit, of course, was Shaboom. Mm -hmm. uh, the Diamonds had a number of covers of Black Records, and I can't claim that I had any input into what they recorded, but I knew that this particular member of the group who lived on Dury Street was into R&B, and uh, as I said, both the Diamonds and the Crew Cut's had hits covering American R&B records. The other Canadian group that I would have heard on the radio at the time was the four lads uh, who had all had formed at St. Mike's as had the crew cuts and they had gone to New York and were recording had a number of hits and backed uh, some Columbia artists like Johnny Ray. Uh, the four lads had um, standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. I'm trying to remember their hits. It must have been a real dream for a, a young 12-year-old kid to be working in a record store, especially when you yeah, love was, music so much. At that time, we had listening booths, and the kids would come in and say, what's new? And you put on a record, and they would listen to it in a listening booth and decide whether or not to buy it. Do you think that because of that, um, I mean, obviously, the, your love of music has is probably the key, but because of your experience in the record store, would that have eventually led you to becoming the record company? Very much so, very much so. What would, what would you have learned about the business back then, working at the store at the age of 12? I seem to have an ear. The salesman would come in and play new records, and I'd say, yes, no, you know, give us five copies or whatever. And I seem to be able to pick the hits, so to speak, ones that we would be able to sell. And the kids who were coming into the store trusted my taste. Uh, so we picked up on a few records. Uh, one, and it was interestingly by a Canadian, Jack Scott, who was originally from Windsor. Uh, he had a single out, and the A-side was Leroy. And I kept saying, turn it over. I'm selling the flip side, a song called My True Love. So Leroy became, uh, I think, a top 10 record in the States. But eventually they, they turned it over and My True Love, I believe, went to number one in the States. Wow. 
Wow. And we had been selling piles of it for months before it was turned over by the record company. Uh, so I kind of feel like I picked that hit. <laughs> okay, so the other thing is you also became a DJ on the weekends. Yeah, as I got older, I started at my high school. Uh, I DJed all the dances, and then I also uh, got hired uh, by different people to DJ at events. And for a short time, uh, I was involved in uh, running a dance over a restaurant in partnership with Catherine O'Hara's brother, Tom. Did you ever consider going into the radio business? Uh, well, I knew I wanted to be involved in music, but I, I don't think I have a voice for on air. Uh, my, when I finished high school, I wanted to go to Ryerson and study the radio and television arts. Unfortunately, I didn't get accepted. Uh, my marks weren't high enough. And I didn't know, at the time, no one gave me any advice that I could have gone and tried to talk my way in, so I accepted <laughs> that. <clears throat> and my father worked at Massey Ferguson, a tractor company, and he got me a job there in the purchasing department because he thought that would be a good future. Uh, so I took the job and I realized early on that without a degree, I wasn't going to go very far in a large company. So I signed up at U of T to take accounting at night school. That was the only degree granting course you could get at night school at the time. Uh, and I signed up for accounting and as part of the course you had to be working in accounting during the day. So I went to my boss, I was in the distribution department and said, can I transfer to accounting? He said, yeah, you'll have to wait till there's an opening, an appropriate opening. But in the meantime, if you want to go for job interviews elsewhere, feel free to take the time off. I don't know if he loved me or hated me, but uh, I looked in the newspaper and there was an ad for an accountant at Capitol Records. So I had one accounting class, debit and credit, and I applied at Capitol Records, which at that time was not the big company it became. I got the interview, and because of my retail background, uh, the personnel manager hired me. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I started in the accounting department, and the next desk to me was a gentleman by the name of Paul White, who did promotion for Capitol Records. The guys running the company, Taylor Campbell and Bud Ferguson, they thought it was a good idea to run a course in the company to promote from within. So they set up this course at night for a few weeks and anybody in staff who wanted it could take it. So I signed up for it, of course, and a whole bunch of other people from the warehouse and other departments signed up. Well, because of my retail experience, I knew how to pronounce the classical names. I knew the artist, etc. So who was number one in this course but me <laughs> so they transferred me out of accounting into inside sales which is a nice name for the order desk and so I started dealing with all the retailers on the phone taking their orders um, and recommending new releases that they should stock 
Uh, I went from there to outside sales and I was given the territory of Western Ontario. And as part of the sales job, they expected the record salesmen to go to the local radio stations. Well, none of the salesmen did because they had no interest in what was being played on radio unless they could sell it. And they didn't understand how to talk to music directors or announcers. Uh, there wasn't any money attached to it as far as commissions. So they never did it, but I did. And I found that I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it more than selling. Can I ask you what year would this have been? And can you tell me maybe some of the records that you might have promoted? Uh, I worked from Cap uh, Capital from 68, sorry, 58 to 62. And at that time, our hits, which were few, we had Dean Martin with that. Some, well, that was before my time, but we had Dean Martin. We had Frank Sinatra's catalog, but he didn't have hits. Uh, we had the Beach Boys and we had Nat King Cole with Mona Lisa, Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer. Right. Uh, Paul White, who I mentioned before, he was he had been an actor in Britain and moved to Canada and got a job in the warehouse at Capitol and eventually got moved up to be the promotion person, literally the only promotion person in Capitol Records. <laughs> and he subscribed to all the British magazines, NME, Melody Maker, etc. He kept track of what was happening in Britain. And after World War II, there was a lot of Brits immigrated to Canada so he created a series called the 6000 series, which was for British artists like Vera Lynn, Freddie Gardner, who were really aimed at British expatriates living in Canada. And he started putting out some of the other records from Capital's parent company, EMI in England, and he put out uh, Cliff Richard, which wow. uh, broke in Canada big time. He put out Helen Shapiro, which also had a couple of hit singles, put out Frank Ifield, who had a big hit called I Remember You. And then he put out a record called Love Me Do by <laughs> the Beatles, which first time around did nothing. I think it was 123 copies sold. <laughs> uh, and then he put out another Beatle record that didn't do much. And then he put out a two-sided hit, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and she loves you. And because of the success he had been having, particularly with Cliff Richards, uh, Canadian radio uh, picked up on the Beatles before the U.S. and were released here before the U.S. and broke here in a big way before the U.S. So then the floodgates opened with the Beatles and uh, EMI, the parent company, had Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Dave Clark Five, Freddie and the Dreamers. They had a whole bunch of the British acts that were had broken in England, and they all broke here on Capitol. In the U.S., the initial Beatle records were on different labels because Capitol U.S. Did, passed on them, and a number of the other British acts were also on different labels in the U.S., but Capitol Canada had them all. I wonder if... Um... How did your perception of music change as a I fan? I love the British stuff. No, but I mean, I wonder, as, as a person who's a fan of music, 
How did it change when you became part of the business of music? I don't think my taste changed, but I, well, at Capital, as I said, I was calling the radio stations and understanding what radio wanted and also understanding what information radio wanted. <laughs> so that allowed me, I, probably at that time, the, the one record I can take credit for was uh, I Remember You by Frank Ifield, which I was able to get CKLW, which is a powerhouse radio station in Windsor that went into, I think, 13 American states. And I got them to play it, and it became a big hit in the States. So that would be my contribution outside of, you know, working with the Beatles and selling the Beatles and promoting them too. But I know I have to give full marks to Paul White for that. Anyways, I reached a point at Capitol uh, that I started looking elsewhere. And I called a company, somebody had told me, that they were looking for a full-time promo man, not a split sales promo job. And I, a company called McKay Distributors, which distributed London records in Canada, I applied and got hired. And in uh, seven days, I was fired twice, <laughs> rehired twice, and I quit. The distributor had been run a variety store down in Parkdale. And I didn't understand why, but after the fact, I figured it out. He was being forced to buy the records from London Records in Montreal and paying a wholesale price, less a distributor's discount. And he was very, shall we say, thrifty with product. <laughs> At Capital, you know, we were very liberal with product, promo copies and what have you. His attitude was different. He wanted me to call a radio station, play the record over the phone. If they committed to playing it, then I could send it to them. But if they didn't play it, I was supposed to ask them to send it back, <laughs> which was just an impossible situation. That's why we parted partners very quickly. Uh, I said it was ridiculous, but because, you know, the records, the singles cost maybe 10 cents to make uh, at the time, maybe even less, I don't know. And so Capital, we, you know, you're giving away a dime. To him, we were giving away 50 or 60 cents because right. he wasn't the manufacturer. He was a distributor. <clears throat> Anyways, I uh, phoned up another company. It was called Apex Records here in Toronto which was part of a company called the Compo Company, which is owned uh, by Decca Records in the U.S. And I called up the boss of the Ontario division and said, I'm looking for a job in promotion. Uh, and somebody had suggested maybe you would be interested. He invited me to come up and be interviewed. And we talked for an hour or so and he created a job for me on the spot as Ontario promotion manager for them. And they had, as well as the product they owned from DECA, et cetera, which was Brenda Lee, The Who, Burt Kempfert, a lot of country acts, Loretta Lynn, not a lot of rock and roll outside of The Who, which they had picked up from England. Uh, anyways, they also represented in Canada at that time because it was a much smaller business 
the Warner Reprise catalog and United Artists catalog. These were licensed to them. And Warners were just starting to take off with Peter, Paul and Mary and Trini Lopez, uh, bought back Frank Sinatra with uh, Summer Breeze and Something Stupid, bought back Dean Martin with Everybody Loves Somebody. United Artists had this local guy, Gordon Lightfoot, on the label, so promoted his first album on United Artists and subsequent four more albums on United Artists, and they all got over 100,000 in Canada. <clears throat> promoted a lot more artists. We had a lot of hit artists that we represented through licenses. And uh, after the five years, in 68, 64 to 68, I worked for Compo, and over that period went from being local promo man to local promo manager to national promo manager to vice president of promotion. And as I said, I won three Juno awards. Uh, at that time, they gave them to people in the industry. They look much different. Anyways, uh, Gordon Lightfoot asked me to manage him. Uh, so I left the record business per se to manage Gordon Lightfoot. How difficult a decision was that? Because obviously you had done quite well being in promotions from starting from regional to provincial to national and, and I guess to the VP of promotions. So you've done quite well in the promotion field. Yeah. How difficult was it to say, oh, I'm going to change gears and become a manager? Well, I worked with Gordon for five years. Uh, so I knew, I knew him quite well. Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't just jump, you know, we had initially, we had a three-year contract, which I wanted for security because uh, we just had a baby and I bought a house. So I, uh, I wanted that security for, for the first three years. And it was a, a new field to me, but I had been, you know, a lot of the acts we worked with at Compo, in some cases, I had almost quasi-managed them. You know, the Canadian acts, we had the Lords of London, who went to number one in Chum, uh, the Irish Rovers, I worked closely with their manager. I had been a licensed booking agent for a short period of time, never really uh, worked at it full time, but uh, you know, I, I had had my fingers in different things. <clears throat> so moving with Gordon was not that big a change. But this also comes at a time when just, well, I, I know that Gordon was quite um, established, but he kind of exploded around that time, did he not? With if you can <laughs> Well, my during mind. my compo days, he went from playing the riverboat for one night to playing it for a month. And in the last, uh, second last year, for the first time, he played Massey Hall for one night. Hmm. Uh, and we got the backing of uh, Johnny Bassett, who uh, family owned uh, the Telegram newspaper and CFTO. So we got a lot of publicity from them uh, to ensure it was a sellout. And Gordon did his first ever uh, Western tour. Up to that point, he'd only played coffee houses uh, and bars. I had met him, he was playing Steele's Tavern on Young Street for 200 bucks a week. 
So he went from 200 bucks a week at Steele's uh, to selling out Massey Hall in that five-year period. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to accomplish with his career? Like, And I, I don't even know how one determines something like that, but as somebody who came from the record business world, did you have a good sense of what you could accomplish with his career during a certain time? I wanted to maximize his potential, whatever that may be. And I had enormous faith in his talent. Uh, you know, I saw him perform almost every week. Uh, well, as a compo, when he worked at Steel's, so I'd be down there and I was, you know, dropping in, having lunch with him uh, at his home, his apartment with his wife. Uh, and I had e enormous faith in his talent and as pe other people were recognizing Peter, Paul and Mary recorded uh, Early Morning Rain and other people were starting to pick up on his songs. Uh, so I had said I'm most confident that he could be a major, major artist. Fortunately, the first record after I got involved that he put out was an album that in Canada was called Sit Down Young Stranger and on it was a song called If You Could Read My Mind and it did not start in Canada. The album came out and we issued one or two singles that didn't do any anything outside of Canada and then a DJ in Seattle picked up on the track If You Could Read My Mind and started playing it and it went on to be, you know, I don't recall if it was top number one, but it was top three in the U.S. and the U.K. and of course Canada. And so his career exploded at that point. Did it surprise you? I mean, obviously we listen to that song now, and it's 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 legendary. But but did it surprise you that the record company didn't pick that initially, or or the fact that when they when this guy played it, it it went it it got noticed quite a bit. Well. <laughs> You know, it didn't happen very often that radio would pick up on a track off an album, particularly an album that was at least eight or nine months old at the time. So that definitely was surprising. Uh, but as soon as it was a major station, and at that time, as it is today, uh, although uh, record industry is less reliant on radio now, but uh, when a major radio station would pick up on a record, the record company would throw everything behind it. Going back to my days at Capitol, when I got CKLW to play Frank Ifield's I Remember You, Capitol US immediately got behind it, and it went to be a top five record in the US. Uh, in a record company, you're just looking for that spark of support, uh, and then wherever that spark comes from, then you concentrate on it to take it from a spark to a flame. And that's a, every record starts that way for a new artist, has to start somewhere. You know, in some cases it's a regional thing like the Seattle Sound or years ago San Francisco or for a long time LA. Records have to start somewhere. The Unicorn by the Irish Rovers, which went top five in the US, started here in Toronto at Chelm. Right. Uh, and, you know, gave the Irish Rovers a career that is now 55 years long starting with the unicorn which i promoted and when i had my record company we recorded a song called wasn't that a party which became their second big hit 
almost 20 years after the first, and that sustained their career, and they are still actually, uh, one night last week, they had a, a online concert uh, of the Irish Rovers. I don't know where it was from, but, you know, when uh, COVID is over, the Irish Rovers will be back on the road, and their first hit was 1960. Uh, and they can still draw concert size audiences uh, in North America, in Australia, New Zealand. You know, when you get a successful career and you manage a property, uh, you have a longevity. And the Rovers have it, Lightfoot has it. You know, I sit back on with Lightfoot after, if you could read my mind, we had a couple of other hits, Summerside of Life, and then. Sundown, which became his first and only number one in the States. He had the number one single album simultaneously in the, in the U.S. So that really established him and gave him the career uh, longevity that he still has. He's got dates booked for this fall. You know, he'll be 83. Uh, but he's still out there working and, uh, you know, drawing 15 to 2,500 people a night fantastic career and as far as this, I set up his publishing companies and we published Sundown and If You Could Read My Mind and others and I did all the publishing deals worldwide at the time. <clears throat> if You Could Read My Mind, when I stopped managing Lightfoot in, what was that, 60, 68 I guess, there had been over 300 recordings of If You Could Read My Mind by people like Barbara Streisand and Johnny Cash. Bob, uh, Bob Dylan recorded Early Morning Rain, you know, he built up a, a very lucrative publishing catalog that Gordon sold a couple of years ago, but he owned almost all his important copyrights. And during that period, I got very involved in publishing and got on the board of CAPAC, which merged with BMI Canada to become SOCAN. And I got involved with the Music Publishers Association I was also a big supporter of Canadian music, and I got involved with an organization then called SERPA, Canadian Independent Record Production Association. It's now called CIMA, C-I-M-A, Canadian Independent Music Association. And we lobbied for Canadian content, uh, and over time we created Factor with the broadcasters, and then we got the government after five years to put money into Factor. And again, with broadcasters, worked to create Radio Star Maker Fund, uh, which has put substantial money in the Canadian industry. And I was uh, a big supporter of Canadian music. And I decided the management wasn't what I wanted to continue to do. To be fair, that time, uh, Gordon was drinking heavily and had gone through a messy divorce and was not the most stable person. So I decided, what do I want to do? And I said, decided I want to own a record company. So, okay, uh, before we go there, yeah. can I ask you about the Canadian industry? You, you touched upon how important it was for you to build the Canadian industry. Um, tell me about the Canadian content rule and, and your thoughts on it back then and your thoughts on it now. Uh, it was absolutely necessary uh, because... Uh, radio stations only one played the hits, and the hits were ma mainly decided by 
chart positions in the U.S. So if you had a high chart position in the U.S., almost every Canadian radio station would play you. There was a few exceptions. Some of the uh, R&B records from the States didn't get as much play in Canada. The black music wasn't as popular here. Motown was very popular, but some of the other black artists from the U.S. didn't get as much radio support here as they did in the U.S. And that was understandable. <clears throat> so Canadian content regulations were absolutely necessary. The person who is unsung, <clears throat> who was uh, behind a lot of it, a lot of the lobbying behind the scenes with the government, was a gentleman by the name of John Mills, <clears throat> who he, he's in the Juno Hall of Fame. Uh, he was the general manager of CAPAC, which merged to become SOCAN, and he had been lobbying in Ottawa for years and had a lot paid lobbyist in Ottawa. Uh, the other people who deserve to be recognized, of course, are Walt Grealis and Stan Cleese, who started RPM Magazine. They realized, funny how things go in circles. Going back, I mentioned uh, as a kid listening to George Lorenz on Buffalo Radio, George put out a tip sheet. A tip sheet was something aimed at radio to tell them what was happening locally in different markets to help guide their programming. And there was a number in the U.S. and George Lorenz had one and he and Walton Stan had met and George had said what Canada needs is a tip sheet telling stations in Canada what's happening in the rest of Canada. Uh, and promoting Canadian artists. <clears throat> I mentioned the seven days I worked at McKay Distributors. I replaced Walt Grealis. He was their promotion man. And he, Stan Cleese, had a record label. And Walt was qu quietly promoting his friend Stan's records as well. And the boss of McKay Distributors found out and wanted to fire Walt. And that's, he hired me and fired Walt, and I only lasted seven days before I moved on. <clears throat> but that's when Walt started RPM Magazine, which ran for many years. And he, Walt started, uh, Walt and Stan started, uh, besides RPM, they started uh, the Red Leaf Awards, which became the Gold Leaf Awards, which at a certain point in time, Harris, the Canadian Association of Recording Arts and Sciences, obtained the rights to the awards and changed the name to the Juno Awards and took it to television and the rest is history as far as the Juno Awards. They uh, have been on TV much longer than any of the American Music Awards and they're now, uh, I think, 37, 38 years the Junos have been on television. Wow. We'll be on television again in June this year, subject to Ontario allowing artists to perform. So they're long-standing, and uh, Walt and Stan, Walt is a member of the Order of Canada. He's subsequently passed. Stan is still alive, but somewhat of a hermit living in Oshawa. Uh, but he won't be interviewed. He won't talk to anybody in the music industry. He won't come out to any events. Stan is probably 
maybe 85, close to 90 years old now. But he was definitely one of the major figures in Canadian content. And there's a, a gentleman from Australia who's also passed now by the name of Richie York. Richie created a lot of publicity. Whether the publicity was necessary, I'm not sure, but it was welcomed at the time. Uh, said through John Mills, we knew that the government was looking at Canadian content and had been convinced of the need for it and held public hearings across Canada and uh, we ended up with 30% on AM radio and 20% on FM radio. It caused an explosion uh, in the Canadian music industry. There was a few labels around at the time, but none of them had any funding. One that comes to mind was True North Records, which had Murray McLaughlin and Bruce Coburn initially, and then over time developed a number of other Canadian artists. And Bernie Ficklestein, the principal in the label, is still managing Bruce Coburn. Bernie started the label literally out of a phone, bo uh, phone box on Yorkville. He didn't have an office. There's a pay phone. Bernie was a dishwasher and managing initially... I think it was Luke and the Apostles, or no, Kensington Market. He managed Kensington Market, or maybe both. But if the payphone rang, then he would run and answer it from his dishwashing job. Bernie's a great character, and he wrote a book about it. Uh, there's also a label in Van uh, Edmonton called Stony Plain, which was a folk and blues label that existed for many years. It was just sold a couple of years ago. You came from a time when there was, as you said, not many Canadian artists. What, at what point did you see the importance of promoting and, and producing Canadian music? Was there a time when something happened or whatever that, that made you realize we really need to promote our own? Yeah. In 1962, I went to the New York World's Fair in New York for a week. And it was amazing. <laughs> In 67, we held Expo in Montreal. I went to Expo for a week. I took a teenage uh, disc jockey friend of mine by the name of Paul Ski, uh, who was disc jockey after school in St. Thomas, Ontario. <clears throat> we went down there for a week and Expo just blew me away, much better than the New York World's Fair. And I looked at this and said, Canadians can do anything the Americans can do, at least as good, if not better. And I became, really, that week, an ardent Canadian. Interestingly, Paul, from being an after-school DJ in St. Thomas, went on over time to be the president of Rogers Broadcasting, in charge of all of Rogers' stations. And he and I were both inducted in 2014 into the CMW Hall of Fame. Me as the record company person, he as the broadcaster. Uh, we had those parallel careers. Uh, <clears throat> when I decided I wanted to open a record company, I looked around the competition. I saw there was hardly any that was doing anything serious. They were trying to, and they didn't have any funding. That's why most of them vanished. Uh, so I, uh, I had got a friend of mine job as head of promotion for Warner's, uh, his name was Tom Williams, and he and I had talked at night 
uh, in bars about starting our own company, how we do it differently. And so I called Tom and said, I'm ready to start it. Are you? And he said, yes. So we sat down and did a business plan and went out and you know, in two days raised $300,000. When I say raised, that included uh, both Tom selling a property he owned, a house in Cabbage Town, and me taking a mortgage on my house. And the Irish Rovers invested, uh, put together an investment group, and I, I met with a venture capital company who made a commitment. So we raised $300,000 in 48 hours and launched a record company. And I told Gordon that I, this is what I wanted to do. I would continue to manage him on a lesser uh, financial relationship. But when time came, I was going to go with the record company. And if he was unhappy with, with me, he could let me cut me off at any time. So we did that for a couple of years during which we built the record company and had our first gold record with the homecoming by Haygood Hardy and started Attic Records then and Tom stayed for 10 years and he got burned out dealing with radio people. So he decided to uh, retire and he did and I carried on running the company alone and over time built it up to being quite a substantial profitable company. As I said, we had 114 gold, platinum, multi-platinum records from Canada, the US, Holland, Japan, UK. And in 2000, I was approached by Alan Gregg, who was the former manager of the Tragically Hip, who was putting together a public company to be a record company. And he came to me and said, we'd like you to be involved. We'd like to buy your company. And if you don't want to uh, be part of us, then we will become your biggest competitor with the deepest pockets. And at that time I was 60 and wasn't relating to a lot of the music that was happening then, particularly hip hop, even though we had broken I, Maestro Fresh West with double platinum. But um, I wasn't relating to a lot of the music and I'm sure the artists weren't relating to me. So I had already been thinking of uh, downsizing uh, my company and just concentrating on a couple of labels I've represented. And so when this offer came along, I agreed to sell. And we started a company called Songcorp as a public company. Uh, Alan went out and raised $16 million and we launched. And unfortunately, in the first six months, we had two major bankruptcies which meant we had shipped a lot of product and owed labels and artists royalties and didn't get paid. And we kept going. And I then wonder, Sam the Record Man went bankrupt. And that was basically the end of Song Corporation. How much of that had to do with Napster? Because that would have been about 1999 and 2000. Would that have played a role? Or was it just the way music was perceived and things were changing? In my mind, it was monumental. As I, I said, I was uh, 60 and I wasn't relating to the music and I saw streaming as the future of the business. I did not expect retail to crash as quickly as it did because Napster was illegal. Mm -hmm. uh, but retail in the early 2000s literally collapsed almost overnight with everybody going out of business. Not just the visible ones like Sam the Record Man, 
but the we're, we're called sub-distributors and rack droppers, the people who supplied the records in Walmart and department stores, they all went bankrupt too. And unfortunately, Songcorp just didn't have deep enough pockets to survive. Uh, I think even, even if we had raised two or three times as much money in the public market, we still would have probably ended up going out of business. <laughs> and we saw it, even the majors, BM, BMG uh, was sold to Sony, you know, over time, Capitol Records was sold, A&M Records was sold, Island Records was sold, Polygram Records was sold. <laughs> the music industry, the record industry, was just a disaster for a decade. And then legal streaming came on board and started to turn around. If we can go back, because yeah. what you did with Attic was quite amazing. The, the first $300,000 that you raised... Um, and I, I don't need financial details, but how far would that money, did you imagine that it would take you? Like for the $300,000, did you think that that would be what you would be working off of for the first three years? Or was that like for the first year? I don't well, we became profitable fortune in our second year. <clears throat> what we knew, as I said earlier, our competition was all underfunded. The major labels weren't in the Canadian talent business. They were... Uh, sales organizations for their American and British product. So they weren't competition to any degree. And the Indies, existing Indies weren't competition because they had no funds. So we committed to making world quality records. And that was our differential, so to speak. Plus, Tom and I both had a lot of experience in promotion and marketing and publishing. Uh, so we had uh, a leg up. Our business plan, of course, which was for five years, at the end of five years, we'd all be wealthy, but that's typical of any business plan. <clears throat> but the venture capital company believed in us and uh, didn't interfere at all, let us do whatever we did. And they were also helpful in some business decisions and they were shareholders in A&W Root Beer so uh, we were able to put together some tours sponsored by A&W. Uh, Bell Telephone was an investor in this venture capital company. And when we moved our office to Queen Street East, there wasn't enough telephone lines. So the venture company called Bell Telephone and Bell Telephone removed a couple of pay phones from the area to give us more telephone lines. Uh, they, were, they were helpful. Interestingly, our first big record, we, we signed singer-songwriters initially. Uh, Ken Tobias, Shirley Eichard, Ron Negrini. And although they got a lot of airplay, and uh, because our well-produced, well-crafted songs didn't sell much. We signed Flood, and unfortunately, uh, one of their principals uh, had cancer and died. There's a fair every year in France called Midem, and I went to Midem and I met uh, a man there by the name of Haygood Hardy, and he had written a tea commercial, and people were tracing down through the ad agency trying to get copies of the tea commercial, which was only 30 seconds long. So the ad agency thought it would be a good idea for Haygood to stretch it out to be a full song, uh, and they funded the recording of it. 
Pega took it to all the Canadian majors and they wouldn't, weren't interested in releasing it. He played it for me at Mid-M. I said, we'll release it. Call me when you get back to Toronto. He was going on a ski trip after Mid-M. He called me. I put together funding for the rest of the album so it didn't cost Attic or Haygood anything and put it out. And we went double platinum in Canada. And I sold it to Capitol Records in the U.S. And he was named the Instrumental Artist of the Year in the U.S. by Cashbox magazine. We did a number of albums with Haygood that were gold and platinum. Uh, unfortunately, he died a number of years ago. He was a jingle writer and was able to give up writing jingles to concentrate on being a recording artist and a concert artist. Did you start off as a singer-songwriter label because of your history with Gordon Lightfoot? Personal taste. You know, I like Joni Mitchell, like Neil Young, like Leonard Cohen. There's other Canadian singer-songwriters. I like Murray McLaughlin, Dan Hill, David Bradstreet. <laughs> and as I said, we, they were well-crafted records and well-crafted songs, but they just weren't grabbing the public. Got the radio spins, and uh, some of them, Ken Tobias in particular, still gets a lot of airplay. And those records are 50 years old now. When I look at the roster of Attic Records, it's it's quite diverse. It's all over yeah. the place. Um, and it's, it's interesting because there's such a big difference, whether it be your rap record with Maestro or... I was interviewing Rick Emmett. He was saying that they had negotiated a deal with Attic Records even before he had actually joined the band, which I thought was quite interesting. Tom was friendly with Mike Levine, and Mike and Gil Moore came to Attic with a concept of a new power trio like Rush. And power trio made a lot of sense financially from a tour point of view, and uh, the artist's point of view, because they wanted to split the money that many ways. They had got RCA Studios to give them free time and recorded a single with somebody else singing on it. I don't even remember who it was singing. <clears throat> and they said, you know, we don't really want you to promote it. We just want you to send it out to radio stations. It's two things. One, Rick is signed or is a member of a band. That the leader has a contract with Capitol Records. But Rick's not part of the contract, but he will join us if his name is on their contract. And we don't want any advance. Here's the single. Just put it out. And by having a single at that time, you could get lots of work in bars. And they went off and played Northern Ontario a week at a bar uh, and developed their act, so to speak. And then came back to Toronto six or eight months later and we launched them in Toronto. Uh, three places, one in Scarborough, one on Young Street, and one in the West End. And that was the launch of Triumph as we knew it. We gave them a $1,000 advance to have press photos taken and develop a press kit for their agent to send to these bars, and it worked. And they, in the bars, they always acted like they were doing a concert, not a bar gig. So they had all the tricks. They had the fake speaker columns that had no speakers in them, but looked impressive from the audience point of view. Uh, they had lights. They had runway lights that flashed, and they put on the best show possible in a bar. 
We recorded their first album for $12,000, put it out, and it went platinum. Uh, recorded a second album for $27,000, put it out and went platinum. And then we uh, got a deal with RCA in the U.S. who paid us $150,000 per album for two albums. And the first album was a compilation of the two Canadian albums. And when they gave us the 150 for the second album, we gave it to the band and they built Metalworks Studio with that $150,000 advance, which originally was to be a rehearsal studio for them to uh, write songs, rehearse, develop their show. And they decided to convert it into a full-fledged recording studio. And now it's also a trade school, still one of the best studios in the country. Did you have any idea Triumph would be as big as they became? Candidly, I thought they would have been bigger. Oh. And that's what ended up leading to the demise of the group. Uh, they hit a certain level, and at one point in time, they, want, they had somebody in the States wanting to sign them, offering to buy them out of their contracts with Attic and RCA, so we sold them their contract and all their rights for a substantial amount of money. And then uh, they ended up buying themselves out of their RCA contract to go with MCA Records, who is funding all this, uh, Irving Azoff. And they continued to make records for MCA. And they were hitting gold like in the States, I think one platinum. But my understanding is that at one point... Azoff went to the band and said, you guys aren't getting anywhere, you're not growing. We think it's time to bring in outside producers and outside songwriters and outside songs. And that's when Rick, who had been interested in pursuing other musical things personally, uh, that's when he decided that he didn't like what the record company wanted Triumph to be doing combined with the fact that their last tour, they didn't really make any money because of the cost of the staging. Uh, the band came home uh, without much profit off the gig. And touring was important because you tour and that has to support you for when you're not touring. So my understanding from Rick is that the record company interference and uh, lack of substantial returns as a member of Triumph led him to leave. I wonder, from from your point of view as a record company, um, you, you obviously have expectations of each of the artists that you sign. Yep. Um, and in the example of Triumph, it might have been less than what you'd hoped that they would achieve. How many, or can you give me an example of an artist that you thought would do well, but did way better, that, that surprised you? Well, Teenage Head... I thought we we're going to do really well. And then unfortunately their van went off the road. We had things set up in New York. Uh, MTV were interested in them. We had a live broadcast from a club on a local radio station. They were playing, I think somewhere near Timmins. In the middle of the night, the van went off the road and Gord Lewis, the guitar player broke his back. And uh, they decided to not do the New York showcase without Gord. Uh, they had hired another guitar player to play his parts, but it wasn't Teenage Head without Gord. Uh, and I can't disagree with that. 
So that ended all this momentum we had going in the States. And then their then manager who ended up in jail for ripping them off, uh, he went to war against us and we decided that with him as our manager and Gord out of commission that we didn't want to continue to be involved. And of course Frankie died and that was the end of the teenage head that we had signed. <clears throat> they were able to scrape together a deal with MCA, forced to change their name from Teenage Head to Teenage Heads because the American Record Company was afraid of the name Teenage Head. They, <clears throat> it came from, I think it was a Ramones song and it meant a teenage attitude, but the record company was afraid of the sexual connotation of Teenage Head. So forced them to call themselves Teenage Heads. They recorded an EP for MCA US, did one festival in Tennessee where they came on at 11 in the morning, uh, and that was their total US career, wow. uh, unfortunately. And the rest is unfortunately very sad with Frankie dying and Gord is living in a mental hospital now. Uh, you may have seen the TVO documentary, uh, very, very sad. Mm -hmm. So when, when we look at your art, diverse artists from like uh, Teenage Head to McLean and McLean, the Killer Dwarfs, the Nylons, the Lincolns, Downchild, like it's quite varied. Um, yeah. is, that, and could, is it safe to say every single one of them would have been part of your love of music? We were a commercial record company. Right. You know, we realized that singer-songwriters, we early on, were not going to make it for us as a commercial record company. As I said, we got lots of airplay uh, and no sales out of those early artists. And not, not that we did, you know, we had, in the case of Shirley Icard, we had an American producer, we had an American record deal. Uh, we had Billy Payne from Little Feet playing on our record and playing with her live. We had... All the acts we signed originally, we had American releases for. Flood were with private stock. Patsy Glant was with private stock in the U.S., EMI in Europe, and from New York to L.A. was the number three record of the year in England. And Patsy was the number two female vocalist in Europe after Donna Summer. Triumph were with RCA. Rhonda Greeny was with RCA. Ken Tobias was with Capital. Shirley Eichard was with Epic. You know, we had got all these American deals. So we had the American income coming in to, to make world quality records and bring in name producers. But for whatever reasons, these acts weren't selling enough and didn't crack the US market, the international market. Most of them didn't. So we, we liked the people we were dealing with and we respected the music. Anvil, for example, you know, I don't like metal, but I respected what Anvil were doing, and they still are doing it. In fact, today is Rob Reiner's birthday. I sent him a birthday message this morning, the drummer from Anvil. I respect their commitment to music, and we got them. Uh, we were almost gold in Canada. We got them a Amer heavyweight American manager who managed Aerosmith. He tried to get an American deal and said he couldn't without having Canadian rights. So we gave up the, the band so that he could get them a, an American deal, uh, which as a business person 
we shouldn't have done, but we did. And then he never got them an American deal. And the band has, unfortunately, has survived since. And they had the movie, uh, which they made. Uh, and the director of that movie, the person who pulled it together, had been a roadie for Anvil when he was 16. He came to Canada for the summer and volunteered to be a roadie. And that's how that all came together with the film. Many years later, uh, he produced a film with Tom Hanks that made a lot of money and he could afford to do Anvil. Uh, it's still a great film. It's an ma- amazing film. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, we did what was right for the artist. I have no qualms about it. If we had kept them, I think they would have been more successful. But, you know, when you're dealing with a heavyweight manager who we got for them, uh, Aerosmith's manager at the time, David Krebs, we did what was right for the band. <clears throat> and we respected the acts. We signed, you know, loved Donnie Walsh and Downchild. We did well with them. McLean, McLean were funny. <laughs> they were filthy. Uh, but I, you know, we saw them a number of times and they were hilarious and they were right for the times. Uh, what can I say? They're both dead now, unfortunately, but people are still talking about them on the internet. So with 104, like over 100 hits that you had, would it be fair to say that you achieved everything you wanted to when you first sat down with Tom and said, let's build a no. record company? No, we wanted it to be an international record company. And so we had success. We sold a million albums by the Nylons in the States, over three albums. But we didn't become an international record company. Got close. I had an American music publisher who was very interested in bankrolling a company and had a president for the American company who was a president of an EMI company former president of Columbia Records, Bruce Lundvall, who wanted to come with us, but EMI would not let him out of his contract. The American funder wouldn't go ahead without Bruce Lundvall, so uh, it didn't happen the way we had expected in that regard. So it was was a disappointment. I can't say all our dreams were reached, but I'm proud of what we did. Uh, I, I have no... No loss of feeling that we were successful. You know, financially we were successful. We gave all the artists their best shot. You know, they have careers. Downchild's still working. Lee Aaron's got a new album coming out in June. Killer Dwarfs is still working. Triumph, well, they broke up. Teenage Head, unfortunately, uh, with Frankie's death, kind of ended their stream. Uh, Shirley Eichard wrote something to talk about that Bonnie Raitt recorded, so she's living up north, quite financially comfortable. Ken Tobias is in New Brunswick, and I'm in touch with Ken on a regular basis. He's still making music. I bought a painting from him a few months ago, a wonderful painting. So I, I, I'm in touch with the artists. They're still, most of them are making their living out of music, subject to COVID. Most have got royalty streams from their publishing. I don't know if this is a fair question, but what are you most proud of, personally? This may sound strange, because I really had nothing to do with it, except my ears. I was at one of these Midem conferences, and somebody I had done some business with at Polygram in New York, uh, I had licensed him something, I don't even remember what, and he came up to me with a cassette and said, I've produced this, would you be interested for Canada? 
And I said, what is it? He said, it's Jennifer Warren's singing Leonard Cohen songs. It's an album called Famous Blue Raincoat. Jennifer had been a backup singer for Leonard. We did this album. I sent it to all the majors in Canada by mail. None of them ever even acknowledged receiving it. You know, would you be interested? And I listened to it. The first track was a song called First We Take Manhattan. <clears throat> I said, yes. I offered him $3,500. <laughs> he was hoping for more. So he kept shopping it at Midem. And you have to, Midem was like, at that time, like 11,000 people there for a week, taking over the whole town of Cannes in the south of France. Everybody's out to make a deal. He came back to me towards the end and said, you know, are you still interested? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you 5,000. He said, okay, deal. So I licensed famous blue raincoat for $5,000. It sold, by the time it was finished in Canada, sold 500, sorry, 500,000 had generated $5 million in business. We brought Jennifer up to play Ontario Place Forum, where my wife was in programming. I uh, did two nights, as I recall, wonderful, wonderful concerts. Jennifer, in fact, was back in Canada three or four years ago. She did a tour for some strange reason in Northern Ontario. Closest she got to Toronto was Richmond Hill. So I went out and saw Jennifer in Richmond Hill, at the Richmond Hill Center of the Arts, of 750 capacity. Uh, she could have, if she had wanted to, she could have been a superstar in Canada off that album. But she, she really didn't enjoy performing very much and never followed up on it. But that album, selling 500,000 copies, I think we helped bring Leonard back. Leonard had been ripped off by his manager, and he was the publisher, so I was sending him checks, publishing checks, and he called me uh, to thank me because those checks were very important to him at that point in, in time because his manager ripped off all his money that he was basically surviving in our checks. And then he played Massey Hall, and I went backstage and talked to him, and he was just a lovely man. And then when uh, he got inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame in Vancouver uh, by Jennifer, we went out and I had lunch with Leonard and Jennifer, uh, just a wonderful lunch. And I'm, I'm so proud that I was, you know, I wish I had been involved in the beginning, that I could take credit for it, I can't, but I recognize the quality of Leonard's songs and the quality of Jennifer's performance and the company that licensed to us went bankrupt, but Jennifer kept up her relationship with us and we paid her the royalties instead of the bankrupt company. And we had a long relationship. Uh, we put out a couple more of Jennifer's albums. Obviously, they didn't do as well as Famous Blue. And we were trying to find Canadian songs for her to record. And the closest we got was something to talk about, Shirley Eichardt's song, and Jennifer said, it's just too bluesy for me. Shirley offered us the publishing if we could get Jennifer to record it. <laughs> Jennifer didn't, and somehow it got to Bonnie Raitt, and the rest is history for Shirley too, and Shirley's a wonderful person, so I'm glad for her. I'm glad what we did with Leonard and Jennifer.
It's so nice to hear. Like this, there's such such care and respect that you seem to have for the artists that you work with, and the fact that a lot of these people are still in touch with you. Um, I'm, I want to close off by asking you one more question, if that's yeah, okay. okay. Um, I know that music still plays a big part in your life. What, what's the greatest thing you've learned from music through the journey that you've taken in music? The uplifting quality of music. <laughs> when I get up in the morning, as I head to the kitchen, the first thing I do is turn on the radio to Jazz FM. <laughs> and I have it on all day, unless I'm listening to something uh, on Spotify or online or somewhere else. Uh, I gave away all my vinyl and almost all my CDs. Uh, my CD player doesn't work anymore. People thought I was crazy that I should have sold my collection because I had a large collection. I didn't feel I was entitled to make money off the records I had. I had enjoyed them, so I gave them to somebody who allowed him to sell them. But I, I listened to music almost all the time, background or foreground. Uh, still enjoy it. You know, I, I listen a lot to the older artists. And we were talking earlier about the growth of streaming. A lot of people don't realize or have no reason to know that half the music streamed on Spotify is what we call back catalog. You know, it's James Taylor and Simon and Garfunkel and Gordon Lightfoot and uh, Pat Stevens and uh, so many of them. That's where the record company profits come from. They own all those. They get streamed enormously and there's no expense involved for the record company. So even though streaming pays fractions of a penny, there's so much of it that that allows them to, when they sign a new artist now, uh, they're only interested in artists they think can be global stars. And I'm sure every record that they put out now, there's literally millions of dollars spent on making the best record possible, the best videos possible, the best appearance, etc., etc. And that's uh, Canadian industry, I'm jumping around a bit, but the Canadian-owned industry can't play in that playground. So they've become singer-songwriters, which I don't like the euphemism, but I'll use it, Americana, blues, niche markets. But the acts that are, Canadian acts, and I'm proud of them all, the Drakes and uh, Weekends and the others that have broken through are all signed directly to American labels and have got that million dollar kickoff. They're not signed to Canadian labels. Uh, and that's unfortunate that the Canadian industry has become kind of a cottage industry and almost totally government supported with the different government programs that if those programs went away, the Canadian owned industry, which is most of the Canadian artists are part of the Canadian industry, not part of the global industry. That if the structures, government structures went away, uh, the business would collapse. And people are talking saying, why do we need Canadian content regulations on radio today? We have Drake, we have The Weekend, blah, blah, blah. Yes, we have those, but there's no reason to eliminate the Canadian content regulations. It's just been easier for broadcasters. 
and most broadcasters I know are still supportive of Canadian content regulations. Now, radio's still alive and vibrant. Yes, some AM stations have closed, and radio's not as profitable as it once was, but it's still a profitable business. Still important. Collectively, people listen more to radio over the week than they listen to streaming, and it's important that they hear Canadian artists. You know, I'm online a lot, perhaps too much, and I see uh, just average people, younger people saying, you know, I didn't know they were Canadian. You know, they're one of my favorite acts. Well, it's great. That's, I like it that way. You know, I don't want everybody Canadian to be labeled Canadian, but I like that people know they are Canadian. And I'm fully supportive of the Canadian content regulations continuing. I don't see how they can put content regulations on uh, streaming. That, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, uh, the broadcast streaming service, uh, not Spotify, uh, Sirius. <coughs> Sirius XM <coughs> pulled a quickie on the Canadian government when they got licensed for Canada. <coughs> and what they did is said to Canadian government, oh, we're going to integrate Canadian music in all our channels and we're going to give CBC its own channel. We're going to have a channel of only Canadian music, unsigned Canadian artists. Well, they gave they gave the government the channel of unsigned Canadian artists. I doubt anybody listens to it. I know a few people listen to CBC on Sirius XM. A few friends of mine in the States who listen to it a lot because they enjoy the Canadian programming on CBC. But no, they never integrated Canadian music into the other channels. They hired, I'm trying to remember, uh, Cam Carpenter as the Canadian ambassador. And his job was to go to the programmers at Sirius XM in the U.S. and elsewhere and introduce Canadian music to them so they would integrate it into their channels. Cam had his job for six months after they were licensed. He never went outside of Toronto. Uh, they misled him. And once they're licensed, they're licensed. And the license isn't going to be taken away. Just the same as much music was licensed as a music channel. CMT was licensed as a music channel. They're no longer music channels, but they're still television channels. Unfortunately, the government doesn't regulate things properly. They allow the broadcasters and SiriusXM to run over the regulations or the deals that were made and I feel very badly for that. It's a shame they've allowed that to happen. You know, now a lot of cars, new cars, don't have CD players in them, but they all have Sirius XM in a three-month free trial. And obviously, what they hope is that once they get your credit card, you're going to forget about them. And I was guilty of that. I had Sirius XM in my car, and it was only somewhere during the last half year that I realized I'm not driving anywhere. Why am I paying $15 a month to Sirius XM and I'm not listening to it? So I canceled it. And of course, every week I get a new offer from them, come back for five bucks a month, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't want to support Sirius XM. They screwed the Canadian government around. They screwed the Canadian listeners around. I don't know what's going to happen on uh, online services. I, I just can't see the government can do anything except uh, make Spotify and the rest guarantee that they will make 
Canadian music available, but there's no way you can force people to download it or uh, stream. It's not like radio where the broadcasters had to honor the commitment. I just can't see anything similar to that working on streaming. The film and television industry is very healthy. Uh, the music industry, as I said earlier, is unfortunately has become kind of a cottage industry again, supporting a lot of musicians and when they're able to work, they can work. Uh, I think the pandemic has eliminated the careers of a lot of Canadian musicians and that's negative. Uh, they're not going to come back. You know, I, I don't see live concerts before the end of this year. Uh, even once COVID is under control, are people going to want to go to concerts? Are they going to want to go to bars? I don't know. Uh, I'm afraid of the worst. It's a difficult question. Who knows? Uh, yeah. It's a big concern. But thank you, Al, so for this time. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a quite impressive career that you've had. I appreciate you sharing that with me. Why are you so interested in Canadian stuff? Oh, I'm interested in music. Um, and, and not that I'm not interested in Canadian, but... Um, because I think a lot of musicians I deal with are Canadian, and I'm certainly uh, into the Canadian music, but I'm, I'm just generally interested in, in music and the love of music that I have. Maybe I could interview you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wouldn't be as interesting, believe me. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking this time. I, I really appreciate it. Okay.